Good morning and welcome to Immaculate Conception of Darden Prairie. St. Joseph Radio would like to say thank you for joining us for this event. As we talk about the source and summit of our faith, we have some great speakers. Our first speaker has a lot of accolades, but we're gonna read the short bio. It's Dr. Kenneth Howell. He is author and lecturer, was a Presbyterian minister for 18 years and a theological professor in a Protestant seminary for seven years. He is currently the president and director of academic research for the Eucharist Project, an international movement promoting the supreme sacrament of the church. Dr. Hall also taught in higher education for almost 30 years, including for over a decade as professor of religion at the University of Illinois, where he taught classes on Catholicism and served as the director of the Institute of Catholic Thought of the St. John's Catholic Newman Center. So without further ado, let's give a nice hand for Dr. Kenneth Howell. Thank you, Matt, and thank you so much for coming this, this morning. I'd like to thank uh, especially Lou Cortese uh, for ma making the arrangements for me to be here uh, this time. Thank you again for coming, and uh, to Father Lampe and to Father, your pastor, um, and especially to thank you to you, because your presence here this morning suggests that you love Christ and the Eucharist, and you know how important it is to our faith. As an adult convert to the church, I came to realize that the Eucharist is the very center, the source and the summit, as the church says, of our faith. And even though I didn't grow up in the Catholic faith of the Catholic Church, I came to appreciate and to love the church above all because Christ is the center of our church. He's the center of the church in every sacrament, in every, but especially in the Eucharist. This morning, I'd like to talk to you or share with you some thoughts about a um, phrase that I'm sure that we've all heard, love beyond all telling. And this love that I want to talk about today is a little different than the one we hear about in Advent, but nevertheless is very important. When you ask the question <clears throat> about what love is, of course, we know there's a variety of answers that have been given in the history of humanity. But there is a true definition of love, and that love is seen most of all in God's gift of his Son. So as we begin this morning, I'd like to ask us to pause, to pray, and to ask God for his blessing upon us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, we come this day to you who are all good and all deserving of our love. We confess that we are feeble and frail, but we do desire to love you as you love us, even though we so often fail in our highest aspirations. Grant us today a greater measure of grace that we may rise from our lowliness to embrace you who are our highest good. We are emboldened to ask this because you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, 
God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before we begin our theme this morning, I do want to take a moment and encourage you to go out into the, uh, the foyer today and to look at this volume that is there, The Mystery of the Altar. Now, I am very reluctant to engage in self-promotion, but um, I've written about seven or eight books, but this is the best one. And the reason it's the best is not because most of the words are not mine. They're actually the words of the great teachers of the church. There are 365 meditations on the Eucharist in this book, right? one for every day of the year. From the beginning of the second century, like the Didache, going up to the time of John Paul II in the 21st. So I want to encourage you to, to go out, and St. Joseph Radio has, has pulled together a number of copies. I encourage you to look at it, perhaps to purchase it, maybe give it as a gift to someone else. Because I think you'll find, as the priests in the diocese have found, that this is a great boon to their spiritual life. You know, your, your archbishop bought one of these for every priest in your diocese right, as a gift. And I want to encourage you too, and all good Catholic people, to consider the meditations every day of the year. I wonder if you've ever heard this phrase before. Around the season of Advent, we hear in the prayers of the church a prayer that goes something like this. Speaking about Mary, it says that she bore Christ in her womb with love beyond all telling. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Mary bore Jesus in her womb with love beyond all telling. That actually is a very poetic translation of the Latin phrase amor ineffabilis, ineffable love. Because the love that Christ has shown us in becoming a man and humbling himself from the glories of heaven is truly a love that can never be described. In order for us to understand this a little bit more, I'd like to ask you a simple question. How do you know that God loves you? Did you hear it from your parents when you were growing up? Has your teachers in school or maybe in religion class told you that God loves you? Has a priest ever told you that in confession? I imagine the answer to that is, for most of us, is yes. But how do you know that God loves you? Do you just accept it on the word of other people? Maybe you've read John 3.16, which says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Or maybe you remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, where he asked the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he lists all these things that might separate us from Christ's love. And then he concludes, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Are these sufficient to convince you that God loves you? Well, you know, there's another reason, too. 
It's a very visible and tangible reason. The Eucharist is God's answer to our question, does God love me? In the Eucharist, we see an expression and a reality of God's love for us. Think of it this way. Suppose you were hungry. And many of you ever been hungry? No, I mean really hungry. Have any of you ever been starving to the point where you didn't know whether you're going to live? I've never been there. No, not in America. Because food is just a little, a little ways away, a little time away. Now, there was a time I felt that I was going to die. One time I was in Rome, and I was visiting some friends. And you may know if you've ever been to Rome or a European city, they have very small elevators. So I went in this elevator, and these friends lived up in a, in a multi-story building. And I got in the elevator, and I went up, and it stopped between the floors. And suddenly, it felt like the air was getting thin. And I said, you know, Lord, this may be the hour of my death. And so I prayed to the Lord, help me. You know. And then I started crying out in Italian the best I could. You know, help me, help me, help me. And, and the fire, came, the fire, fireman came and got me out of the elevator. Well, well, actually, that's not the closest I ever came to death. One time I came to death within two millimeters of my life. Because on June 3rd, 1995, now you remember that day, right? Of course not, but I do. And that day I was shot by a man on the street. And when I was shot by him, I thought I was going to die. But God in his mercy preserved my life with good doctors, good operation. In fact, it's good that I'm speaking to you now because the bullet went through my vocal cords and destroyed them. The doctors put them back together. And I thought I would never sing again. And my wife would probably have preferred that. <laughs> but lo and behold, I can't stop singing. But how many of us have ever starved, have been ever at the point of death from hunger? Suppose you were, and you knew that someone close to you had food for you or had drink for you, and you're, you're dying of thirst, but they refused to help you. They refused to feed you or to give you water. Would you say that person loved you? God's demonstration of his love for us is that he feeds us, not with the, with the food of this life, but with the food of eternal life. So what I'd like to do today is to have us consider this together. Do you have a handout in front of you that was given to you? These are two quotations from one of the greatest of the, all of the Greek-speaking fathers of the church. St. John Chrysostom. And uh, I feel very honored and privileged by God to have studied the writings of this man. I just finished about a 300-page book writing on St. John Chrysostom, and I translated 
at least 50 or more quotations from him that are in that book. And I sent them, by the way, to the, you know about the Eucharistic preachers that are going around the nation, you know? They're in the Eucharistic revival that's going on. Well, I sent them to them, and they're using them, hopefully, in teaching the people of God about the Eucharist. St. John Chrysostom wrote more on the Eucharist than any other Greek-speaking father in the church. In fact, most of the Latin fathers didn't write as much as he did. But one, in one particular, um, in one particular uh, homily, he uses a little Greek word. You see it there on your sheet? No, I guess you don't. But you can write it down. It's the word philtron. It's a little Greek word, philtron. You know what it means? It means a love charm or a love potion. So, for example, so you, the, the uh, St. John Chrysostom says that the Eucharist is like a love charm where God dangles it in front of us to hypnotize us into love, into love of him. Or to change the metaphor a little bit, God gives us a love potion so that we will be drunk with love for him. The first quotation comes from a homily called on Blessed Philogonus. It was preached five days before Christmas. And here's what he says. You can read with me. I greet and love this day of Christ's birth, and I put love front and center, and I want to make you sharers of this love charm or love potion, this philtron. For this reason, I beg and entreat you to be here with all diligence and readiness. For each of you should empty his house so that we may see the master lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, that awesome and incredible spectacle. Remember, this was preached five days before Christmas. So was he talking about a nativity scene, a crash in church? No, they didn't have crushes in the ancient world. You know where that came in, don't you? St. Francis of Assisi in the Western Church. And then it got moved over into the Eastern Church. And by the way, the, the celebration of Christmas began in the Western Church and was taken into the Eastern Greek-speaking part of the church. Because St. John Chrysostom talks about that in another homily. But here he says, you're going to come to the manger. You're going to see the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. What an incredible sight. He says then, he asks the question, well, what defense can we have? What excuse? When he came down from heaven for our sake, but we don't even come out of our house to him. When the Magi, those barbarians and foreigners, ran from Persia to seeing right, lying in a crib, but you, O Christian, do not even remain a little while to see this blessed sight? Well, if he's not talking about a nativity scene, what's he talking about? What are you going to see in Christmas, on, in church on Christmas? Look at the last line. When we approach with faith, we too will certainly see him lying in the manger. Why? Because this table 
fulfills the order of the manger. This table fulfills the order of the manger. What could that possibly mean? What's the order of the manger? The word order, as I've transliterated it there, is the Greek word taxis or taxis, which we have like in the word syntax. It means the ordering together of things. God has ordered things together so that the same baby that was lying in the manger of Bethlehem is on that table in the Eucharist. This table, this altar, was not an afterthought for God. It wasn't that he did salvation history, Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then thought, oh, wait a minute, we need the Eucharist. No, no. The Eucharist is part and parcel of God's plan of salvation. Because the question that still lingers if the Eucharist is not true is how do you get the rewards of eternal life from one on the cross into me, into you? How does that happen? And God says, you're starving for eternal life. You're starving for meaning. You're starving for a significance. And I've got the answer. The answer is I give you myself. Think of that. That when we come to the Eucharist, it's just as if we were at the manger, worshiping the baby Jesus, the God becoming flesh. The table of the Eucharist puts us in contact with the human life of Jesus that was lived over 2,000 years ago. The same Jesus is there in the Eucharist. Look at the second quotation for just a moment. <clears throat> this comes from homily 15 on 1 Timothy. Now, if you've read 1 Timothy recently, you'll know that it doesn't particularly talk about the sufferings of Christ that much. A little bit, but not much. But in preaching, notice this is 15 homilies on one letter in the New Testament. <laughs> Our preaching is pretty flaccid compared to the way it was in the ancient world. Right? So he's preaching the 15th homily on 1 Timothy, and he says again, I will display this love charm. He's going to dangle it in front of you so that you can be hypnotized and love God through that hypnosis. How's that going to happen? I will display this love charm not only with these, that is what he's talked about, but also with the things I suffered. It was for your sake that I was spit upon. I was beaten with a cudgel. I emptied myself of glory. I left my father and came to you who hated me and turned away and cannot bear to hear my name. I pursued and ran after you that I might take hold of you. I united and joined you together with me. Do you see? Do you see why Christ came from heaven? Think about it for just a moment. 
How could the gory, bloody face of a man hanging on a cross be a love charm? I remember the story, true story, of the man, maybe he was in his mid-40s or so, he had tried to be a faithful Catholic, but somewhere in his early 40s, his life began to fall apart. You know, I recently read a study and it said that the time in which people are the least happy in their lives is in their 40s. Interestingly, right? And you know what? That was true of me, too. When I was younger, I was happier. And now that I'm, well, real old, right? I'm happier. But the time that was the most difficult in my life was in my 40s. Well, why? because that's where things seem to come to a head in life for a lot of people. And this man, who tried to be a faithful Catholic his whole life, but his life began to fall apart. His wife divorced him, his kids kind of abandoned him, and he wasn't doing well in his business. Life was just falling apart. And one day he didn't know what to do. He just came into the church and he sat in the pew and he looked at the tabernacle. And then he looked at the crucifix with Jesus on the cross. And as he tells the story, he just began to weep. His whole life was falling apart. And he didn't know what to do with his life. But he saw how much Jesus loved him in the image of the crucifix and the reality of the Eucharist. Yeah. The suffering Christ can be a love charm. It can be a love potion to draw us to God. But how does that happen? Read with me. In the middle of the paragraph, he says, eat me, drink me. I hold you above and below I am mingled with you. In other words, he's talking about his presence in heaven which is his proper species, as the theologians call it. Below, he's mingled with us. Is this not enough for you? That I hold your first fruit above? He means the down payment on your salvation is in heaven. Does this not satisfy your desire? I came down again below, and I'm not simply mingled with you. <laughs> Listen to this language. I am chewed, I am digested, little by little. That great mixing and mingling and union may come about. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6? He said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to have eternal life. And in that text, probably somebody has already pointed out to you, there's a progression in John chapter 6 where he uses the normal word for eat, which is estheo in Greek, and he changes it to the end of the word trogo. The word trogo means to chew on something, like hard meat or something. That's the word that St. John, because he spoke the same language as the New Testament, uses here. But now he puts it in the passive verb, and he says, I am chewed by you. 
This is what brought me to the Catholic faith, the realization that the Eucharist is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And Christ said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he goes on. Things united still stand within their own limits, like two people get married, but they're still two people. But I am interwoven with you. I don't want to be separate. I want both to be one. The whole purpose of Christ coming into the world and living a perfect life of going back to the Father and giving us his presence in the Eucharist was so that he could be united with us and we could go to heaven. You see, my friend, there's two problems that we face as human beings that keep us from God. One is the problem of sin. The other is the problem of our finitude or our finiteness. Now, you know, all of this suggests and means that God's love for us is eternal and enduring. But let's ask the question, what does it really mean to be in love? My wife and I, Sharon is her name, Sharon had to, we had to be separate from about three or four days recently. <clears throat> she went to a funeral of a distant cousin and I had to go on a speaking engagement. So we were apart for about three or four days. But it just happens that we arrived home at the same time one evening. And as we were sitting down to have a, a, a short and, and easy dinner, um, I suggested to her that we, after dinner, we, we sit down and we share with one another what took place in those three or four days that we were separate. And she said, oh, I'm so tired. I don't feel like talking right now, but I just want to be in your presence. There's love, pure and simple. I just want to be with you. I just want to be in your presence. We don't have to say much. And those of you that have been married many years know what I'm talking about. You're just together. You don't have to talk even. You're just together. This reflects the scriptural idea of love too. When in Psalm 42, for example, it says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. And then Psalm 84, the psalmist again says, how lovely are your dwelling places, for the, my soul longs and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then later, he says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I remember this verse meant a lot to me. Oh, it was more than 20 years ago now. I've been a Catholic about 23, 27 years now. Before I became a Catholic, as the introduction suggested. I was teaching at a Protestant seminary. And this particular seminary, 
I knew very well that if I even contemplated becoming a Catholic, I'd be axed immediately. And so I began praying as I prayed, asked God, you know, what do you want me to do with my life? And as he revealed slowly to me that he wanted me to become a Catholic, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life because my whole adult life, my education, everything had been, you know, to do this, be a minister and to be a teacher in a seminary. What was I going to do? But I remember praying, saying, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but I'll even be a janitor. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with being a janitor, but usually men with PhDs and, and you know, a lot of educations are not janitors, right? I said, but I'll be a janitor. Just let me be a janitor in a monastery. One day in the house of God is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather be a janitor in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You see, that psalmist conviction and idea reflects the nature of true love. In the Eucharist, we find God's answer to the question, how do I know God loves me? He has fed us. He's given us the food of eternal life. He's slaked the thirst for meaning in our lives. The only problem with us and every human being is that we don't want the right things. We want wrong things. We want things that will hurt us. We want things that will leave us empty. And you see that in people, of course, that are you know, immersed in a drug life or alcohol or other things that damage them. But most of us have something in our lives in which we want something less than what is really fulfilling. Ultimately, it's about changing our desires to want what is the ultimate good, who is God. I remember back, and perhaps you remember too, have you ever heard these words in Mass? Make us so love the things of heaven that we judge rightly the things of earth. May we so love the things of heaven that we judge rightly the things of earth. I was telling my oldest grandson, who now is in college, I was telling him the other day, because he was talking about financial success and so forth, and I said, yeah, you know, I want you to be successful, and we've given you some money to help you do that, and so forth and so on. I said, you know, but if I had a bigger house, a nicer car, more money in the bank, I wouldn't be a bit happier, right? Those things don't make you happy. What makes you happy? And I, and I said this, it's, it's my relationship with you as my grandson. It's my relationship with your mother, my relationship with grandma. It's all these things. These are the things that make people happy, truly happy. And what will make us happy ultimately? that profound, deep, and close union with God. That, it will be the answer. And how do we find that? We find that through Christ in the Eucharist. You know, recently I was reading a text of the Bible, or a, a verse in the Bible, 
that just jumped out at me because I think it summarizes this so well. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, where Paul says, for you are of him, you belong to God, in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These three things that are mentioned, in addition to wisdom, are present to us in the Holy Eucharist. Christ's righteousness is present to us because that dealt with our past. All of our sins are forgiven in and through the Eucharist because it is the righteousness of Christ that comes to us through the Eucharist. The future is also comes to us in the Eucharist because he says that Christ became for us sanctification, our growth in holiness, our hope that tomorrow will be just a little bit better than today. That maybe five years from now, I'll love God more than I do now. That future is bright because of the holiness of Christ that comes in the Eucharist. Christ became for us righteousness. He became for us sanctification or holiness. And he became to us redemption, the merits of everlasting life. That's the ultimate future. Remember that prayer at the end of the rosary that says, O oh God, whose only begotten Son, by his life, death, and resurrection, has purchased for us the rewards of eternal life. Grant we beseech thee that meditating upon these mysteries in the most holy rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we may imitate what they contain and obtain what they promise. There's the theology of redemption in that one prayer. How are you going to get to heaven? What does the prayer say? That through his life, death, and resurrection, he has purchased for us the rewards of eternal life. It must have been more than 20 years ago now that I was giving a talk to some men in Indianapolis. I, at the time, I lived in Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, a, the man who'd been a pastor of one of the parishes there had moved to a parish in Indianapolis. So he called me and he said, uh, Ken, I'd like you to come and you know, give a, like a Saturday men's retreat to the men of the church. So I guess there were probably 40 or 50 men there. And it was a pretty good-sized church on the north side of Indianapolis. And I was giving you know, talks during the day, and we were praying together and having a wonderful time. We came toward the end of the day, and uh, I just happened to mention in one of my, my last talk, I just said, you know, many Catholics have a tendency toward Pelagianism. Now, don't be embarrassed, please. How many of you know what Pelagianism is? The deacon knows. <laughs> well, that's a good deacon. I'm glad you know. Anybody else know what Pelagianism is? Well, those men didn't know either. So he asked, well, what's Pelagianism? And I said, oh, it's the idea, you know, that if we just work hard enough, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, we'll be able to get into heaven, right? 
And the man looked at me with a puzzled look, like, well, I thought that was the Catholic faith. I said, no. Pelagianism was roundly condemned by the church in the fifth century. St. Augustine worked vigorously against it. Yeah, it's a danger. And it's not just a danger to Catholics. It's a danger to all Christians. We think we're going to get there by our good works. Now, the, the subtle danger here is that good works are important. We must do them. There's no doubt about it. But unless God first gives us his grace, we'll never be able to get there for the two reasons I mentioned before. One is the problem of our sin. And it's not just the acts of sin that we've done, but it's also the things that seem linger inside of us. I wonder how many of you, obviously I don't want you to answer your question, I don't want you to show me, but I wonder how many of you have ever faced the problem that I faced. I mean, for years I would go to confession and I'd only confess the things that I actually did, the sins of commission. But I must never confess the sins of omission, the things that I failed to do. And yet every Sunday, we supposedly say, uh, what I have failed to do. What did I fail to do? How many of us ever bring those issues up with God through confession? But oftentimes it's those sins of omission that come from something inside of us that is lacking. Thankfully, I have an enormously uh, holy spiritual director, and he helps me understand. And all the great spiritual writers of the church have often said that each one of us has some fundamental thing that we struggle with whether it might be pride. And by the way, pride is like a hydra. It has many different heads. Right? Or it might be greed. <clears throat> or it might be lust. Or it might be anger. There's all kinds of ways in which sin just keeps gnawing away at our souls. Christ took care of that. The victory has already been won. On the cross... His righteousness is the reward of eternal life. But then there's a second problem, and this is why the Eucharist is so important. We, even if we had no sin at all, we still could not get to God. Why? Because the finite cannot grasp the infinite. And God is so infinitely beyond us, we could never get to him on our own. You see, most of us have the mistaken idea <clears throat> that God is just like one step above us, the big man upstairs. God is not just a little bit above us. God is infinitely above us. We could never get to him. So what must happen? He must come to us. And he does come to us. And if that isn't love, I don't know what is. That love is not just 
him saying, oh, I love you. He's demonstrated that love by his life, death, and resurrection. He purchased for us the rewards of eternal life. And how does that, those rewards, how do those rewards get to us? It says it in the last part of that prayer. That we may imitate what they contain, the mysteries of his life, and obtain what they promise. Do you see now why the Eucharist is a love charm? Just as I was going to bed last night, I picked up my little book of St. Augustine. And if you get a chance to read this, this is not on your sheet anywhere, but it's in the Confessions of St. Augustine, the famous Confessions, which I hope you've all read. <clears throat> book 7, chapter 10, section 16. Right? 7, 10, 16. This is where St. Augustine says that he, he talks about his conversion and is seeing this light that came from within him but was really God. And toward the end of that section where he's talking about <clears throat> that he suddenly began to see things more clearly than he'd ever seen them before. He takes on the voice of Christ and he says, I am food for the mature. Rise and eat, right? And you will not change me into you like what happens when food is metabolized in our body, but you will be changed into me. You see what happens? The more we have Christ, the more we chew him, the more we digest him into our souls, then the more we become like him. And that's when we really begin to make progress in holiness. And that's when we get closer to heaven. All of that has been provided by Christ. All of that is his gift to us in the Holy Eucharist. So perhaps now you can see why Jesus said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Maybe now we can all understand why St. John Chrysostom dangled the love charm of the Eucharist in front of us. How many of you have learned the lesson in life that it's often the simplest, most mundane things of life that are most meaningful to you? When we're young, we want glorious things. We want excitement, right? But then as we mature, we realize the really precious things of life are all around us. The simple things that we have. It's just bread and wine, right? Yes and no. It's just bread and wine, but it becomes the very gift of heaven that God gives us. The Eucharist is the love potion that when you drink of his blood and you eat his body, you too will become to love him. Because you see, when I said that God is infinite, the only way for you to love him in a way that's worthy of him 
is for him to give you that love. He takes your human love and he transforms it and he elevates it to a love that's worthy of himself. The Eucharist is truly a love charm. It's that love potion that will take us to heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear, precious Savior, we thank you for your love for us that is so evident in the gift of the Eucharist. Help us to fall in love with you more, that we may so love the things of heaven, that we judge rightly the things of earth. And then on that last day, let us say the words of Pope Benedict, the 16th when he died, Jesus, I love you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Ladies and gentlemen, how about a nice hand for Dr. Kenneth Howell? God is good. All the time. I mean, praise God for someone who does their life's work to help his fellow brothers and sisters to be able to touch and feel the agape love that only comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in every tabernacle and every Catholic church. I thank you. <laughs>